Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career breaking down silos by engaging with innovators across industries. And now I'm sharing those conversations with you. Meet the forward-thinking leaders challenging the status quo and unleashing creative new ways of improving financial health by seeing their customers, employees, and communities in 3D. My guest today, Roger Hochschild, represents a new breed of CEO, one who has invested not only in their company's success, but also in the health and stability of our broader society. Roger is only the second CEO of Discover Financial in the last 20 years. The company helped to democratize access to credit cards back in 1986 when it debuted a credit card with no annual fee. Roger embodies this legacy of inclusivity in both word and deed. The latest example is Discover's investment in a new call center in a lower-income Black community on the south side of Chicago. Roger, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Thanks. It's great to be here. So I reached out to you uh, to invite you to come on this podcast as soon as I heard about the decision that you and the company made to open a call center on the south side of Chicago. Uh, an investment that could bring nearly a thousand jobs to what is a largely uh, black community. The unemployment rate of Southsiders is double that uh, of the more affluent North side. And COVID has really accentuated the uh, stark differences that geography can play in uh, one's uh, financial health. And so your decision, the company's decision to put this new call center on the South side and to have a goal to hire all of the center's leadership and much of its staff from within a five mile radius is a really big deal. And so I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit more about that decision. I, I actually think this is like the first new call center you've opened in like two decades or something. It is. I will tell you, it, it's, it's probably the thing I'm most excited about at Discover. And, you know, it wasn't that we necessarily needed a new call center. We actually have a good amount of space in our other facilities. And actually, one of the the changes from the COVID pandemic, um, all of our representatives are now working from home and doing so extraordinarily effectively. So I actually think over time, we're going to need less space. But this really was about targeting a specific community that has not had the opportunity it deserved and us trying to make a difference. And I think one of the things that companies here in the US don't focus enough about is creating jobs in general. And if everyone takes the jobs offshore, then none of us will have anyone to sell products to. And so we have had 100% US-based customer service for our entire time. We're the only major bank that actually has 100% US base. And it's not that they're not great people in Mexico and the Philippines, but I think we all need to think about how to create high quality jobs. And so not only are they you know, well-paying jobs, but every single one has the same healthcare plan that I have as CEO. And everyone has the ability for Discover to pay from the first dollar a, a fully funded college education. So really looking to do our part, but it also quite frankly helps us attract great people that provide the best customer experience. So usually 
if you think about it creatively, doing the right thing is actually doing the best thing for your business as well. So that is really, um, I don't think I've ever heard a company say, well, I didn't really need need more capacity in this part of my business, but I'm doing it anyway. I mean, that's a pretty amazing statement. Um, say a little bit more about where the idea came from. Um, there's so much going on during this crazy time, just managing the business you have. And, you know, as an example, managing your workforce now remotely and from home, uh, did the city uh, reach out to you? Did this just sort of come out of uh, sort of blue sky thinking? Tell me more about that. So we, we certainly have worked closely with Mayor Lightfoot um, and her team and supporting their Invest Southwest initiative. But for, for me, the idea came from, from listening to Ibram Kendi talk a few years back in Evanston on how to be an anti-racist. And I, um, and he talked about systemic racism, which wasn't a concept I'd thought that much about. And it, it really challenged, you know, how I thought about myself, you know, quite happily, not racist, but, you know, am I doing enough? And it got me thinking that the, the traditional corporate site selection process is racist. Now, no one's going out there saying we're going to put our call centers or we're going to put our office buildings in white neighborhoods and we don't want to put them in black and brown neighborhoods. It just works out that way, because what they do say is I want to put my call center or I want to put my headquarters in a neighborhood with the best schools, which translates to a neighborhood with high property values. I want to put my neighborhood in an area with a lot of college educated professionals. I, I want to put my center in, in an area with great infrastructure which translates into historic political power. And, and so you are perpetuating the systemic biases that have, have been here for hundreds of years. And, and so as we thought about it, we said, we're gonna go in a totally different direction. We're gonna go and we're only gonna look at communities that haven't had these types of opportunities. We are 100% confident that we're gonna find great people that just need an opportunity. And so that's why we, we didn't take any incentive money from the state. We didn't look anywhere but the south and west sides of Chicago. And we're really excited to be becoming part of the Chatham community. Wow. Back in the day when I worked at Shorebank, I was in the Chatham community all the time. Um, and so it's exciting to see new investment uh, taking place on the south side. I should tell our listeners that if you haven't already determined this, Roger and I both live in Chicago. Roger's in the north suburbs, and I live on the north side of the city. And in fact, one of the reasons why um, this news of Discover opening this new call center uh, was of such great interest to me is because I've lived in the city now for 25 years. I used to work on the south side of Chicago, and um, I know just how much it would benefit, it will benefit from, from this investment. So you took a pretty strong position on uh, racial equity issues in the aftermath of the social unrest last summer. Uh, and in a memo to your employees at Discover, you said, and I quote, while we work to drive social change in our country, we also need to hold ourselves accountable for creating a truly diverse, inclusive, and equitable environment here at Discover to understand and overcome our biases, respect and celebrate differences, and have open and honest conversations. Now, the story you just told about how you came to this idea 
in the first place about opening this new call center and the personal exploration that you had been doing about being an anti-racist certainly speaks to that. I'm curious, how has that been received at Discover? And what other kinds of changes are taking place as a result? How else is this, this new awareness uh, playing out for the company? So I think it's been really well received at Discover. Um, we have a, a, a culture of respect, but are trying to have a much more robust diversity, equity, and, and inclusion effort to make sure that, that everyone feels like they have the opportunity to succeed and to be themselves at Discover. And I've sort of have have always been aware of the benefits I've had coming from a you know a reasonably well off background, and my parents paid for my education, and and just you know being a a white male, and and the opportunities I've had, and that not everyone has those opportunities. And so growing, I grew up in the city of San Francisco, which is about one of the most diverse communities in in many shapes of of forms uh, and forms, especially in the in the you know late sixties, early seventies. And so I've always loved the environment, the challenge. And for any business person, it's about talent, right? the 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 big drive, the biggest driver of business success is the talent you have on your team. And the more diverse the talent is, the better decisions. It's sort of a a proven fact that that a diverse team will make better decisions. But also, you know, if you create an environment where everyone feels like that they can succeed, you know, you're you're casting a a broader net. So that's always been been part of Discover's history and legacy. More recently, we've pledged to increase our female representation to 50% at all levels of the company by um, 2025 and are, are setting similar goals for, for other forms of uh, diversity as well. And so I will tell you the, the decision to locate the center in Chatham has been incredibly well received. We've had a lot of employees volunteer to help saying they either want to be based down there or they'll fly in from one of our other centers to, to call. And we were a bit worried that, that the reaction would be, well, does this mean fewer jobs where I am? And that hasn't been the case. I'm, I'm really proud of how well the team has responded. And, you know, from the facilities side to the HR side, everyone is just diving in and, and really passionate about doing something personally to drive change. Well, and as you said earlier, when you said, you know, the site selection process, whether it's for a call center or some other kind of facility, work facility, has some systemic racism just built into it. And that may be completely unconscious um, or unintentional. And I'd like to think that uh, by having made that clear in making this decision, that it may cause people to think differently about all kinds of other decisions that they make every day and that they don't really have to, they don't have to think about, but now maybe will cause them to, to take a second and say, wait a second, let me think about why I do it this way. Do, do you think that that's, that, that, that it'll have that impact perhaps? I hope so. And, and I, I think it, it has had that impact in, in discussions I've I've had because, you know, sometimes people need to go through this journey on their own. I mean, I can talk about my journey, but it, but it is something that's deeply personal. And usually there, there's a trigger where something, gets, you know, gosh, I never thought of it that way. 
And I would have said the site selection process, there's absolutely no bias. It's done by the numbers. It's all metrics driven. We don't even look at, you know, ethnic diversity. And if anything, that's a plus. But then you sort of say, well, gosh, why is it then all the jobs go to the same locations? And we had a, a third party company helping us that kept saying, well, there are all these great buildings in River North. Why don't you want to go there? And we said, because we don't want to go there. We want to be in the community. And I think this is something that only big companies can do. And when I was down with the mayor and, and uh, Congressman Rush and other community leaders, um, oh, you know, announcing the new center, um, you know, talking to the small merchants, right, they'll benefit from jobs in the community because the nail salon across the street, the, the restaurant nearby. And then for the employees, you know, many, many of, of the Chicago residents on the south side have an hour or a two hour commute to work which means you're not there to help your kids with their homework. You can't volunteer coaching for sports. You can't do the things with your church that you want to. And so creating jobs in the community is much, much more impactful than just having a job program and trying to hire from the community, but still having people have really long commutes. Hmm. Now you've been at Discover for almost 20 years. Um, and you've been the company CEO since late 2018. Um, and I've known you for a little while now. And I have always noticed that you really have a deep passion for these kinds of issues and for the underserved and the role that financial services plays in driving financial health outcomes. Where does that come from for you personally? Uh, what has shaped your values um, and the beliefs that you you know, bring into the CEO role? So so part of it, and, and I wouldn't correct you and say I've been there over 20 years because that'll make me be uh, even older. Um, you know, so, so part of it comes from my, my parents. My father was an immigrant to the country from South Africa, came here with virtually no money, um, ended up, you know, starting in computers in the 50s and, and building, you know, was a, a tech entrepreneur way before it was cool but was always looking to help people who were not as well off. And pretty early on, I had a boss before I came to discover who was involved in microfinance, right? And a lot of it was, it was outside the US, but uh, they were very active in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, and, and just sort of the, the transformational power that a $60 loan could have. And I saw the efforts around financial inclusion, and a lot of them are, are, are more robust in, in developing economies than here in the U.S. And so that got me, and you and I have had many discussions on this over the years, around thinking about what can we at Discover do around financial inclusion? And everything from financial literacy, which is sort of our, our flagship philanthropic initiative, to just helping people understand what, what a credit score is, why it's important, and simple innovations like printing people's credit score on their statement so they have to see it every month and it'll drive them to, to think about what they need to do to improve it. So it's been a big part of the Discover culture with the prior CEO. I'm happy to be carrying it on, but it's also something that really resonates for me personally. It makes sense then in a way that you've been at Discover as long as you have, because last year you called Discover the Toyota of credit cards because it's really designed for the everyday per person. Uh, and really it was Discover who helped to, if you will, democratize uh, credit cards 
so that they weren't just seen as something the privileged had in their wallets, but that everyone had in their wallets. Because in 1986, it was when the company introduced this concept of cashback rewards, which really transformed the landscape of credit. The company is known as a credit card company, but it's also a bank. And you've been working for a while now to build up that business. So tell us where you see Discover in the mix of the financial services industry that has certainly changed a tremendous amount since the mid 80s. Uh, and where does this Toyota brand, if you will, this brand of everybody, where does it fit, particularly as we're seeing lots of new entrants into the space from uh, fintech companies and uh, neobanks? Yeah, so it's it's a great question. You know, as I think back to 1986, um, Discover was started by Sears, and it's hard to to, you know, probably a lot of your listeners think of the Sears of today. Back in 86, you know, and, and even before that, Sears was the Amazon, the Walmart. They were one of the greatest American companies and really celebrated the mass market, the, the everyday person. And I think that's something that, that's true for Discover and, and other great brands like Toyota. And so launching a credit card with the first rewards program ever, but also no annual fee at a time when virtually every credit card had an annual fee. And then also 24 by seven customer service, which was brand new, um, really a, a different product out there. And then the last piece was also building a whole new payments network, right? Not issuing a Visa card or a MasterCard, but building a network from scratch. And so that really set us on our course. And you're right, it's been a great journey since then. I'm proud to have played a part in it. But a big change has been sort of shifting from being a credit card to more of a bank. And so we're now the second largest provider of private student loans. We have a great checking account, savings account, money market, home equity, personal loans. And so I think of the discover of the future as the leading digital bank. Uh, we've never had branches, but you know the, the next generation of customer experience is what you can do from a digital standpoint. It also allows you to serve, uh, getting back to what we talked about earlier, segments that, that haven't been served traditionally. And you're seeing that going on across the world you know, in, with different mobile currencies and mobile payments that are out there. And so I'm really excited about what lies ahead. You know, we need to do a better job telling the story. Uh, some of the data I saw recently, five out of six people don't even know we offer deposit products when we are the only bank that has no fees on any of our deposit products. So taking some of those things that helped us on the card side, that great customer experience now, not just over the phone, but digital as well and through your mobile device, um, I, I think that will write the next chapter. And there, you know, another brand I, I really admire is Southwest, right? Which mm -hmm. is sort of, again, that sort of small D democratic. And it's for everyone. They bring a lot of value to their customers and then also have a bit of an edge and tone in how they compete. And I want to make sure we have that. We don't want to just be another big bank. Uh, we want to be different. Right. Well, in a way, um, that Midwestern modesty, if you will, I think um, it makes sense. Um, and I think it'll be fun to see 
how you uh, get the word out in this next chapter and, you know, put a little attitude in it, um, which I think is completely acceptable at this point. But yes, that is very consistent with neither one of us are Midwesterners, but I think we've both lived here long enough to know that it feels it feels very consistent. You know, so you talked about payments and just the incredible things going on in that arena, whether it's real-time payments, cryptocurrencies, governments experimenting with digitizing their own fiat currency. And now, you know, we're seeing with the new uh, stimulus bill out of Washington, uh, we're seeing yet more um, EIP payments, more stimulus, but also now a new child tax credit payment, lots of new opportunities in particular for the government to be needing to move payments, to move them more quickly, more efficiently, and to make sure to include everybody, including people who may not always be um, included. Um, You recently joined a group of payments industry CEOs uh, to form this new trade association, um, the Payments Leadership Council, led by Raj Date. Tell me a little bit more about why we need that council now. Uh, Where's the future of payments going? um, And what's this group all about? So I think that the CEOs of the major payments companies um, realize, and this came about through some informal discussions, that there wasn't a, a group or forum where we all came together to look for common interests and things we could do together to ensure a well-functioning payment system. Because you know, having a, a cheap and effective way that's also, to your point, inclusive to help people participate in, in payments is critically important. And so there's some areas where we were already collaborating through uh, an industry group called EMVCO uh, that, that worked on the chip card specification and is now working on what we call secure remote commerce, which is an easier way for the major networks to facilitate card payments online and through mobile devices. And we thought we'd made enough progress that was worth getting together on a continuing basis to make sure that we were leveraging our, our combined power, both to participate in some of these discussions with regulators and others and in the payments industry more broadly, but also to look for opportunities where we can advance uh, the, the payments industry and make sure that we are meeting everyone's needs uh, as part of that. And so it's been a great chance for me to get to know the other CEOs even better. And um, Raj, of course, brings a huge amount of experience. And so I'm, I'm really excited about what we'll be able to do together. What do you make of um, the broader payments landscape and all of the innovation? You know, I'll be honest and tell you that um, depending on the day, um, I am either more or less interested in digital fiat currency. Not really sure what to make of uh, crypto. Uh, Where do you stand on these these innovations? So... uh... Probably done more thinking on, on crypto. I, I will confess to being, uh, and your, your listeners may hate me, uh, a crypto skeptic. Um, I, I think it's it's fine for speculation or a, a store of value. Someone compared it to gold, right? There, there are reasons to want to own it, to buy it, to sell it, to hold it. But it is not that useful to wander around trying to buy things with pieces of gold. And so we are lucky here in the U.S. to have a cheap, payment system that functions incredibly well 
And so I guess I ask myself, well, what, what is the consumer need that isn't being met? Because my, you know, a lot of my background is in marketing. You, know, you, you really succeed and grow when you meet a consumer need. And so I think about what PayPal did when they started. You know, consumers had a need to pay for things they were buying on eBay that was safe and secure. And, and so they stepped in with the, the first P2P transactions and had explosive growth. And Venmo, you know, similarly. Uh, around that. So, um, you know, what does need in, in terms of medium of exchange that, that crypto helps? Other than transactions where you need anonymity, which tend to be a set of transactions that the discover doesn't want to necessarily be involved in, everyone can speculate as to what those are, um, you know, I just don't see the value. So we continue to look at it now. Blockchain and some of the underlying technologies, really exciting really powerful. And so so there, I, I think you will see some of the areas around commercial payments, securities, clearance, et cetera. But, but in, in, now, do I wish I bought a lot of Bitcoin a few years back? Most definitely. Uh, but, but we're still waiting <laughs> to understand the, the consumer value uh, before we make uh, too many investments. It's interesting that you mentioned PayPal because just this week, I think, uh, Dan Schulman, who's also been a guest on this show, wrote an op-ed um, about why he's excited about crypto, blockchain, and um, digital wallets, essentially. Um, and I suspect uh, that this is yet a new version of an account that doesn't need to be a traditional bank account in order to give people access. And that's the one piece of this where I'm interested to learn more before I make a final decision particularly as I think about government payments as an example. Um, and I think about some of the proposals like um, the one that Senator uh, Brown made last year around Fed accounts and this idea that, you know, if you need to get a digital payment from the government and you don't have an account, like there should be a way for the government to still get you that payment. Maybe that's what this looks like. Uh, but, you know, you you do also have a bank and, and a checking account. You just touted a moment ago with no fees whatsoever. Um, so it's it strikes me that maybe the barrier is already pretty low um, and that uh, for those who don't have an account, there are still plenty of options for getting one. Yes. Uh, it's tempting to be safe. If you don't have an account, please go to discover.com, but I wouldn't. That would be just crass marketing. <laughs> um, but, but I am... Uh, you know, as you can probably tell from some of my comments, I'm probably at, at the most extreme liberal end of, of bank CEOs, but I am also a believer in, in the private sector. And so I, I do think we and, and many other banks are, are very determined and excited to, to provide accounts for, for just about everyone out there. So part of it is, is a distribution problem. How do you create awareness of these products, right? And, and we have... You know, for people trying to get started on savings, we have great savings accounts, no minimums, um, no fees of any kind. And so I, I think there are a lot of products out there that will meet broad needs. Um, Dan Schulman is a, is, a, is a much brighter guy than I am. So now I'll have to go back and look <laughs> for that. Um, I do think, you know, you're not cool if you don't have a crypto strategy as a, as a, uh, as a company. So everyone seems to be doing something. Um, we maybe aren't as worried about being cool as we should be. So uh, I'll go away and think about that. So we've been talking a lot about the business strategy 
Um, but one of the things I know you also have a lot of passion for um, is uh, Discover's CRA strategy, Community Reinvestment Act strategy. Um, and I feel like increasingly you've got more tools in your toolkit uh, to be able to make good on issues of financial health and inclusion. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you see the connection between what the business can do and what you can do via CRA and how those things connect up, particularly in light of the fact that like, we're, um, we're almost certainly going to get yet another revised version of CRA um, if and when the government appoints a new head of the OCC. Yeah. So, so luckily, we are regulated by the FDIC, and the FDIC seems to be um, more, more folk, less desiring change on, on CRA. So the, the Community Reinvestment Act is something that we take very seriously. And I think a lot of banks just view it as a, um, a cost of doing business. And so it's a, a check the box exercise. We've got a great team and, and our bank is chartered in Delaware. So a lot of our CRA activities are out of the, the state of Delaware, but they really focus on, on the spirit uh, of the act, not just you know what do we need to do to get a rating. And so are, are always working with different aspects of the community around creative programs, whether it's encouraging home ownership, um, avoiding uh, evictions, um, looking at products and services for unbanked segments, financial education, the classrooms. So we actually think about it the other way in that it can be a great area to develop concepts that may turn into something that we roll out more broadly and turn into a commercial opportunity for Discover. So we were probably one of the few banks who said, no, no need to change. We like the Community Reinvestment Act just the way it is um, and have gotten a lot out of it as a company. And a lot of the initiatives we work on, we, we talk about them a lot internally. And it makes the employees proud of Discover, of our mission, uh, and of what we do to help people who you know need, need a bit of support. So we were both just comparing notes that we've both recently gotten our vaccines, um, at least our first our first shots. Um, and um, I don't know about you, I feel like I can just begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's been a really hard year. I'm curious, as you look ahead, both for the world um, and for Discover, what are you most hopeful about? And uh, what are what do you think this recovery is going to look like? So I share your optimism that that, that uh, things are getting better. Maybe it's just living in Chicago and it getting a little warmer that makes you optimistic. <laughs> There's that. <laughs> um, and, and that, you know, summer may in fact come once again. But I actually think that um, both the, the events of last summer with the, the murder of George Floyd and the, the focus on social justice, but also the real inequalities and, and that the pandemic exposed, um, hopefully ha have created a sense that we're all in this together, uh, a sense of community and a sense of sort of responsibility to help your, your fellows who are, who are just not as well off and, and need help at this point in time. And that carries on because many people were struggling before the pandemic. It, it might have been quieter, but my hope is that that increased awareness and, and understanding of, of the, the collective nature of, of human existence is, is more powerful and that people will, will 
all be inspired to do more. Um, and, and you saw many great examples, certainly, you know, the courage of our healthcare professionals, all the um, essential workers who had, had risk to themselves and their families in not glamorous jobs, right? People who are working as baggers at grocery stores, you know, that, that continued and put themselves at, at risk. You know, a greater appreciation for that sacrifice hopefully will we'll stick with us going forward. Roger, thank you for joining me on Emerge Everywhere. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. I'm Jennifer Tesher, and I'd love to hear your ideas for future guests and your reactions to the show. You can connect with me on Twitter at Jen Tesher. If you liked this episode, please review the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the work and research we do, please visit emerge.finhealthnetwork.org. See you next time.